0: Sometimes the people running sound over at my church joke that I I tend to get really loud. It's nothing compared to what Michael's got to deal with here, I guess, without that amplification. (laughs) So I'm going to be needing a lot of water here, probably. Forgive me. Take a lot of sips. There will be a lot of dramatic pauses for you to just think about what I just said, right? (laughs) It's a great, great preaching technique, so it'll work to my favor. All right. Our passage this morning, Jeremiah 1, the first eight verses... Jeremiah 1, 1 through 8. I trust a familiar story to many of us. Let us hear now what Holy Scripture says. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. And until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then I said, Ah, oh Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you. To deliver you, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your holy word. We thank you for the reading of it. We thank you for the hearing of it. We now ask that you would bless the preaching of it. I could echo the words of Jeremiah. I do not know how to speak, not in a way that is truly, truly appropriate for your word. And so it can happen only by your spirit working in and through Someone like me, a clay pot, would you please do it? Would you please speak to these, your people? Speak not only to listening ears, but speak to soft and hungry hearts eager to drink up this, to feast upon this, your most holy word. To these, your people, on this wonderful and blessed day. Be with us, work in and among us, and through us we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Some excuses are better than others, right? Some excuses are better than others. Like if someone asks you to preach and maybe you say, well, I've got something else going on so I can't preach that Sunday and then Michael has to ask me and then it, no, (laughs) Jeremiah's here, I'm glad he's here, but uh, that's funny how that worked out. As you know, the Internet can be a source for a great many things. You can Google search just about anything and find a list of just about anything, so you know where I'm going with this. I Google searched some of the worst excuses, and these are just a few examples of the ones that I found. Here are some great excuses to get out of work, so take some notes here. One employee said they wouldn't be able to come in because they had eaten too much birthday cake. (laughs) One claimed, I love this one, they had been bitten by a duck. (laughs) I don't know what that duck was capable of, but... One woman explained she couldn't make it in because her roots were showing. And she had to head for the hairdresser as she looked such a mess. (laughs) And then, this is my favorite... One said that she couldn't come in because she had woken up in a good mood and didn't want to ruin it. (laughs) There you go. That's a great way to start, right? I woke up in such a great mood. I'm not going to... Some good excuses uh, for students, for the younger ones in the room who don't have a job yet but maybe are in school. One inventive student claimed, I couldn't do my homework. My computer had a virus and all my pens and papers did too. This was one written by a mother. It said, please excuse Roland from physical ed for a few days. He fell out of a tree and misplaced his hip. So that's a bit more of a typo there than a lie. We'll trust that she just kind of misspoke. And this is is the best of the students here. Dear teacher, my son is under a doctor's care and should not do P.E. today. Please execute him. So another unfortunate typo. Now I love that we're all laughing so hard, right? These are all such laughable, such silly, and really it it points hilarious excuses. Bad excuses, so bad they're laughable. But none of these excuses is any worse than the ones we offer to the Lord God himself in our own lives. None of these excuses is any more laughable than the excuses we often offer to the Lord to try to get out of things that He is calling us to. God calls each and every one of us to any number of tasks. For the Christian, there are at least a few that are universal, right? The first one, what is the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever, right? Okay, some some people played along there. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the Christian's highest calling. It's man's highest calling. There's also a passage in the Bible that tells you what God's will is for your life. Do you know that? If anyone ever asks you, what's God's will for your life, do you know you have an answer? Do you know Paul tells you in 1 Thessalonians 4? He says, and I quote, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. So whatever it is that leads you into greater holiness, that's the will of God for you. Whether it's spouse or job or city to live in, sanctification is God's will for you. And there's one other call. All Christians are given. Every man, woman, and child of God is given the call to do this and also equipped with the ability to do it. And it's to proclaim the good news of the gospel to anyone who will hear. Now this last... One, This last call that we're all given is obviously the one most similar to Jeremiah's call. Now, I, I need to be careful. I know Jeremiah is a uniquely called man. None of us here is the prophet to the people of Judah. He has a unique and unrepeatable call and ministry, but every single Christian is to be a witness. Every believer has received the words of life. You cannot say, I'm a Christian, but I don't yet have the words of... No, if you are a Christian, you have the words of life. And if you have them, you are to pour them out through your own lips. This is not for the professionals only. It's not to be left to the Michael Dixons of the world. It's to be given to all the people of God. He tells Jesus, Jesus tells all his followers, we're to be salt and light. Wherever we go, Peter tells his readers, his readers, not just the leaders that he's writing to in 1 Peter, he says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who will ask you for a reason for the hope that's in you. He's saying that to everyone who's hearing his letter. And earlier in that same letter, he says this He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Have you been called out of darkness, Christian? Have you been called into marvelous light? And he's done that so that you would proclaim his excellencies. And I don't need to give examples of how church history has shown. It starts in the book of Acts, but throughout church history, We've seen that it's really the ordinary believers call them what you want, lay people, lay men and women. They're the ones who've often spread the gospel more than anyone, just faithfully living and proclaiming with their lives and lips. I'll stop there. I probably didn't even need to make that case for you that you're called to this, this ministry of witness and proclamation. So Jeremiah's call and commission may be unique to him, but we have one very similar. To speak the words of life, the good news of the gospel of grace in Christ to any who will hear. And when God calls us to something, all excuses go out the window. When God calls us to something, every excuse goes out the window. And so without further delay, let's look at the story of Jeremiah. As I said, it's likely a familiar one to you. This might be the portion in all of Jeremiah that we know well. And I hope we will see some things here that will confront us, that will convict us. But I pray that ultimately, of course, we'll find encouragement here. Because I actually believe that most of the conviction... We ought to feel when we read the Word of God is the conviction that I am not as encouraged by this as I should be. Lord, help me. Help me to be more encouraged by your Word to me. And so, actually, have a four-point sermon this morning. The first is the context. Jeremiah's context, verses 1 through 3 here. And the first three verses do provide for us the context of Jeremiah's ministry. That's what all this historical information is. And if you were here, and if you weren't, this is not like a guilt and shame thing, but if you were here for the Sunday school lesson that Sean gave, he walked us through some dates of the timeline of Israel's history and Judah's history. And these names and things that may be so foreign to us, here's the point of them. Jeremiah's ministry lasts for a little over 40 years And it lasts during the last 40 years of Judah's existence before Judah is crushed by Babylon and driven into exile. So the condition of Judah at this time is not good. Jeremiah's initial call comes in the days of Josiah. Now, again, if you you know some history here, Josiah is a good king. He's one of the good guys. We like him. He starts young. He begins to lead a great religious reformation and revival. But when Josiah dies, the conditions in Judah are so bad that whatever progress he's made all just instantly falls away. Judah is so corrupt. The people are so far gone that when this great King Josiah dies, just like that, everyone falls back into the idolatry that they probably were already still in. It's like if your car is barreling down toward a cliff. You see the cliff and you're going to open the door and stick your feet out the wind out the door and try to slow the car down that way, right? Okay, it might drop a few miles per hour, but it's fruitless. And I think the Lord is trying to say that that's what Josiah's attempts ultimately were. Not to criticize Josiah. He did the best he could as a godly man. But the car is barreling toward the cliff. And the best efforts one man can offer is to stick his foot out the door and try to stop it. Won't happen. Judah is barreling toward judgment. And Jeremiah is called into ministry at this time. So if you don't already know what Jeremiah's ministry is like, you're beginning to feel it now, right? His ministry is to a stubborn, stiff-necked, strong-willed, sin-soaked people. And as a prophet, his primary message, we see in chapter 20, is violence and destruction. That's what's coming. Judgment is coming, Judah. Judgment. The Lord tells Jeremiah at times, don't even pray for the people anymore. They're too far gone. Stop praying for them. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet, and you can understand why. Because his heart is so broken because these are his people. There are times in this book you can't tell who's weeping right now. Is it the Lord or is it Jeremiah? He, he looks like the Lord Jesus sometimes as Jesus is outside Jerusalem weeping for his people. Jeremiah weeps. They are lost. Every prophet was called to a difficult and lonely life because they, they all had to speak against stubborn sinfulness and persistent impenitence. They spoke against sin and called people to repentance. It's not a popular message. For our purposes, how similar is Jeremiah's context, culturally speaking, to our own? Let's be honest. Are we not living in a lost and dying world I mean, I'm not trying to do this whole America is Israel or Judah thing. I'm not, no, no, no. I'm just saying, are we not living in a lost and dying world? Are we not in the midst of a depraved and decaying culture? And have we not been given words to say? Now, thankfully, the Lord doesn't call us to Jeremiah's ministry, right? This is one of the points of separation. Hopefully, you don't go out to your co-workers and your neighbors and your friends saying, violence and destruction. <laughs> Now that's part of the message, that is the warning. But the Lord has called every one of us to continue on to the good news. To preach the good news of deliverance for all who will rest, who will fly to Him and rest in Him. Jesus calls us to be salt and light in the midst of a world that's consumed by decay and overrun by darkness. And we get scared because it's pretty scary out there. There's a lot of opposition out there. But whatever reason you have to be nervous about walking out of these doors and speaking the name of Jesus, I promise you Jeremiah had more. People plotted against him. They slandered him. They made false charges against him. They attempted to assassinate him. His own family tried to kill him. Can you imagine? Some of us have been written off by our family because of our faith. Some in this room, I don't doubt. (coughs) Jeremiah's family threatens to kill him if he keeps preaching this word that he's been given. And yet even through all that, he remains faithful. He remains faithful. And, And do you know what his reward is? When exile finally comes. Well, he's not initially led into exile But when the Babylonians are coming at one point, he's taken away into Egypt with all the other people fleeing in fear and they're mocking him and just ridiculing him. Oh, look at you, Jeremiah, the righteous prophet, and here you are on the run with the rest of us. He didn't see much good in this life. Even Jeremiah, the righteous prophet, suffers a great deal. That's his context. The context of Jeremiah's ministry. Are we feeling happy yet? It's tough. And so the call of God comes to him. It's an exceedingly difficult context, and so he gets an exceedingly sweet call. It's the second portion of the passage here in verses 4 and 5. The Lord is perfectly aware that Jeremiah's ministry is going to be exceptionally difficult. And all the prophets had a unique call in a sense, right? I mean, they're the prophet of the Lord. He's speaking directly to and through them. But Jeremiah's call is special. And that's why we know it, right? He has a 40-year ministry. He's going to preach and weep over the people he loves, face 40 years of rejection and ridicule. And so how does the Lord begin it in this sweet way? Hear it again, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. You see, God does something very special here. He takes Jeremiah's call, he lifts it up, and he brings it outside the days of Jeremiah's life. It's that timeline thing that was talked about in Sunday school, right? And he says, it's off the timeline. If the timeline starts when time begins, Jeremiah before time began, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. This is no sudden, unforeseen decision on God's part. This is not a mistake or a last resort that God is turning to. Judah is so bad, uh, Jeremiah, I'm pulling you off the bench. You, you look like you're ready for this, so come on into the game. No, he says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And many of you know that this word knew expresses more than just a simple awareness of or a knowing about, like, I, I know that there are people outside in publics right now. No, it's this intimate expression of, "I knew you, I cared for you. You're mine, Jeremiah. You've been mine since before you were born." And so since before you were born, Jeremiah, I've been molding and fashioning and preparing you for this purpose. Now is this also not absolutely true of every one of us? We love Psalm 139. It's famous for its declaration. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And then it says this in verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, every one of the days that were formed for me, which as yet there was none of them. The psalmist is saying, and this is true of us, that God ordains not just that we exist, not that, just that we have life in the days in which we do, He ordains the very dealings of our days. The things that you and I do and are called to, He has ordained them. You still don't believe me. Do you recall the end of Paul's grand exposition in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, of the grace of our salvation? By grace you have been saved through faith. This is a beautiful paragraph. Some of you know it so well. And do you remember how he ends his concluding statement about this salvation that God has given you? He says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, okay, let's go back again. You and I are not Jeremiah. You and I aren't given his ministry, but you're given something. He's calling you to something. He's calling you, as I've already said, to at least being a witness for him, to at least proclaiming the gospel. So I ask you, is that how you think about your life? (coughs) Do you have any kind of purpose in your life? A lot of us have all kinds of things we pursue and desires that we chase after and things we delight to do. But do you wake up each day knowing full well, without hesitation or doubt, that He has given you life and breath on this particular day that He might through you bring about His perfect purposes? Now hear me say that again. He has given you life and breath this day so that through you He might bring about His perfect purposes. Now notice, I didn't say that you're perfect. I'm not buttering you up. I'm saying He has perfect purposes and He has ordained to bring them about through you. The burden of perfection is not on you. It's the one who's working those things through you doesn't mean we don't strive for perfection. But you, Christian, yes, even you weak and afraid as you may be, imperfect and powerless as you may feel, you are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared beforehand. They're spread out before you. Walk in them. And setting the working and purposes aside for just a moment, some of us just need a, a much more basic and foundational encouragement than all this good works stuff right some of you how many of you need to be reminded that before you were born you were known and loved I love this this came this this hit me in such a, a powerful way as I was preparing, studying this passage for this sermon, and though I've known this theologically and been able to talk about it, do you know that because of your election in eternity past, God the Father's choice of you in eternity past, there has never been a time when you were not loved by Him? It's not as if He started loving you when you came to faith, or He started loving you when Jesus died on the cross. He loved you from the moment you were a thought to Him. He chose us in Christ, this is Ephesians again, before the foundation of the world. In love he predestined us for adoption, before time. There's never been a moment in time or out of time that God the Father has not loved you. He chose you, he loved you, because he wanted to, as Paul says, according to the purpose of his will. It's what he wanted to do. Jeremiah was hated by everyone. I'm not kidding. You read this book, he's got two friends we know about. And it doesn't look like there are any others. And you may feel unloved and unwanted by everyone sometimes. Maybe more than sometimes. And would you please listen to the voice of your heavenly father, as he says to Jeremiah, and I'm confident he would say the same thing to you as he says similar things in the New Testament. Before I formed you, I knew you. Now it's hard to believe that having just heard that, Jeremiah would have an excuse to offer And honestly, I I wish I could just end the sermon here. Some of you might want that too. Because you, you like to end the sermon at a climax. And I don't know how you get any higher than that. But let's allow Jeremiah to be an example to us, right? An example of us, for us. Of how our own heart tends to push back after hearing glorious things like that. Jeremiah offers his excuse... And for the sake of alliteration, which I love, right? It's so much fun. We'll call this the complaint. We've seen the context of Jeremiah's ministry. We've seen the call. And now here's Jeremiah's complaint. Verse 6. He hears this incredible call of God. And you can see his first reaction is, ah, Lord God. The, The first words out of his mouth are a genuine expression of total shock. Whoa, you're talking to me? And then it's almost as if he forgets whose voice it is and he pushes back. Behold, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a youth. Two excuses, a twofold excuse really here, right? I don't know how to speak because I'm only a child. I'm only a boy. I'm only a youth. Now, best estimates are that Jeremiah is about 12 years old here. We can confidently pin it between 12 and 20, but most people think he's probably about 12 and don't look around the room. I don't know if we have any in here, but just think about the 12-year-olds you know. <laughs> and you just kind of go, yeah, God, what are, what are you doing here? Not, have you thought this through? It's a scary thought, right? But all joking aside, when God calls someone, anyone, to anything, the proper response is, oh, no, 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 wrong address, next door. You, you want the guy up the street? He's the one who's fit for this. He's the one with the with the abilities and the, the background and the Jeremiah's response, it's not defiant. You, you can tell from the language, it's a sincere concern that he cannot possibly gain a hearing. In his context, just as much as ours. Nobody wants to listen when kids, if we have a big meeting of a bunch of adults, no offense kids, but when the adults are talking, it's generally not that exciting when a kid gets up and starts giving his own thoughts, right? (laughs) They're not going to be listened to. And Jeremiah is saying, nobody's going to listen to me. One, I've not been invited to speak. And you know, I speak when spoken to. And two, I'm just a boy. When I get up and start preaching, they're just going to laugh at me. They're going to mock me. They're going to ridicule me. If I'm lucky, they'll just ignore me. He knows this. He's going to be shrugged off. And so he has this timid response. Not me. I can't do this. Jeremiah is guilty here of what we call false humility. Isn't he? What is false humility? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) We know what humility is, I hope, right? I think... Paul's definition of it would be, to quote Philippians, not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. But C.S. Lewis has a great definition. Some of you have heard this before. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility takes all eyes off of self. There's no self-deprecation, self-diminishing. It's, I just don't think about myself that much. I think about others. I look at others. False humility tries to present itself as, "Oh, I'm I'm no, I'm not a big deal. I'm very humble," and says, "Oh no, I couldn't. I can't." False humility has all eyes on self, and there you see, it can't check the humility box. Jeremiah has his eyes on himself. The reason he cannot answer this call is all about him. Sadly, he's forgotten the most important thing about the call, the one who's issued it. And you want to ask Jeremiah, does your weakness outmatch or somehow overrule God's strength? What what, what are you doing, Jeremiah? And yet let's not be so harsh on Jeremiah, and let's ask ourselves that question. Do you really think that your weakness somehow outmatches, overrules God's strength and power? Think about yourself. What is your excuse? What disqualifies you from purposefully serving the Lord in your life? Jeremiah is not the only one in the Bible to make an excuse like this. We've got at least two other really well-known ones. The best known is Moses, right? God comes to Moses at the burning bush and Moses says, I've I, I got a speech impediment. I'm a stutterer. I, I can't do this. One of the judges named Gideon, he says, Well, my family's irrelevant and I'm insignificant within my irrelevant family. Wrong guy. I can't do this. you got the wrong guy. And our response should be false humility, false humility, false humility. I can't, I can't, I can't. Well, why not? Well, because I'm too this, or I'm not enough that, or I've fallen into this. And again, you hear at the front of every one of those sentences me, me, me. This is not humility, this is self obsession. It's pride in disguise, is it not? And when we read the scriptures, do do you not see this pattern? The Lord loves to pick weak, unworthy, unfit individuals to do His greatest works. He picks them up, brushes them off, and says, go. It's 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31 where Paul is saying, not many of you were wise, not many of you were strong. But he chose the weak things to shame the strong. He chose the foolish to shame the wise. It's 2 Corinthians 4 where he says, We have this treasure in jars of clay. If you don't feel that great or powerful, fantastic. But there's treasure in that clay pot that you are. And it's when Paul says that Christ's power is made perfect in our weakness. So I boast all the more in my weaknesses because Christ's power is made perfect. Do you feel weak? Do you feel unfit, unworthy? Great. You're right where the Lord wants you, to use you, so that you know I'm not taking any of the credit for this. It is all Him. And so finally, how does the Lord drive this home to Jeremiah? And what would he say to drive it home to our hearts this morning? Every one of us here with our list of weaknesses, our list of disqualifications. We see the comfort. Jeremiah offers his complaint and the Lord responds with comfort here in verses 7 and 8. There's twofold response. First, do not say, I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. The first part of God's response is basically just an authority claim. It's the because I said so, right? We hated when our parents, or if you're still a child, you hate when your parents do that. They have the right. They may abuse it at times, but they have the right. And the Lord always has that right and never abuses it, not once. Listen, Jeremiah, I said it, it's going to happen. You can hear him saying, my word stands. It does not sputter and stop when it runs into human weakness. My word stands and goes forth and moves in power. And notice what God doesn't do. As one commentator puts it, God does not dispute the accuracy of Jeremiah's claims about his age and experience excuse me, inexperience. God doesn't dispute the accuracy of these claims. He disputes their relevance. He doesn't get into a debate with Jeremiah. No, actually, you know, I've, I've given you an ability to speak. You're going to find that when you start using it, it's going to go great. And you really know the scriptures well, so I've equipped you in that. He doesn't get into this argument with him. Do you know the Lord never disputes your claims of inadequacy? He doesn't play that foolish game. We do all the time. Oh, no, no, Alan, you're not that dumb. You're actually quite smart, and you're, you're really good at this. And blah. That's how we try to puff each other up a little bit, right? Pick each other up. You're quite good at this. It's okay. You can do it. And we try to encourage them in their abilities and say, go on and do it. You really can because you're, you're, you're quite skilled. And the Lord never does that. He doesn't dispute the accuracy of your claims to inadequacy. He simply rejects their relevance. Irrelevant. Not the point. He doesn't give a list of strengths and weaknesses to Christians. And let's be so thankful for that, right? Can you imagine how much that would destroy us, destroy the church, if every one of us was given this list of strengths and weaknesses so clearly, how much we would compete with each other? Well, I think I'm a seven on this. and uh, You know, I, maybe you're an eight. I don't, I mean, all that would ever do is serve to lead us to look into ourselves and our boastful self-reliance To go, he's made me good at this. And eventually it's just, I'm good at this. We've lost the hymn altogether. So, so what does God do? He doesn't dispute. He doesn't tell Jeremiah what he's good at. No, in verse eight, he says, do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you. I love a more literal translation of that first part. Do not be afraid of them. Is Do not be afraid of their faces. And as one who gets to stand in front of groups of people and speak, I will say, faces make a difference. When I'm looking out on a crowd, I don't do this consciously, but I tend to look more at the ones who are smiling back at me because it just feels good, Right? And the Lord knows Jeremiah has a ministry where he's going to speak to nothing but scowls. It's a really sweet thing that the Lord's comfort is that particular, do not be afraid of their faces. Their opposition of you is just a bunch of faces. But then the crescendo, then the true climax, right? We, we, it's so common to us as to be ordinary and we just diminish the value, the sweetness, the power of this Don't be afraid, I'm with you. I am with you. Do you know these words are the exact same words that the Lord offers to Moses and to Gideon, to everyone who would push back and make an excuse? Moses in Exodus 3 says, Who am I that I should do this, that I should go? And the Lord's response is, But I will be with you. I love it. He doesn't even attempt to answer Moses' question. Moses, let me tell you who you are. You're a shepherd right now, but you grew up in Egypt. You have all this education. He doesn't do it. He just says, Moses, who you are is not at issue. It's who I am and the fact that you are the one with whom I will be. I will be with you. Now go. Gideon, the exact same thing. My clan's the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. Me, me, me. And God says, but I will be with you. It's God's go-to response to any and every one of our inadequacies. But I will be with you. I am with you. Do you not understand that? Don't you get it? He is the powerful one. And where did we get it into our heads that we are supposed to be anything powerful or impressive or special? The scriptures, as I've already said, they're filled with stories about men and women who already being nothing or becoming nothing are used by God for great things. Where did we get the idea that God needs us to be the powerful and impressive one? You're not going to find it here. If He's waiting on you to be impressive, He's going to be waiting a long time. At least... I'll say that of myself if that stings too much for me to say it about you. So, what's your excuse? Are you too young? Are you too old? Are you not smart enough? You're not a great speaker? Maybe you're just not very bold? You're not very popular? It's funny, we think, I'm not in the right position or I'm not equipped properly for this. And the Lord is saying, You're paying attention to this position. You need to pay attention to your position in me. That I am in you and I am with you. God's use of you is not about you, and his power is not limited by your weakness. So, brothers and sisters, Christians, if you are in Christ, then all of your excuses, which would keep you back from serving Him in many ways, they're all taken away. Your sin, which would disqualify you truly, it has been taken away from you. It has been nailed to the cross. That record of debt has been nailed to the cross and washed away by Christ's blood. Do you believe that? And now all of your weaknesses which would hinder you you, you, you are unfit, you are unqualified for these things, to serve the Lord in the ways that He's called you to serve Him, with your family, with your neighbors, with your friends, with your co-workers, whoever. All of your weaknesses which would hinder you. They are nothing compared to the power of God Almighty and the Holy Spirit indwelling you even this day and tomorrow and the next. So my prayer for us is that especially now as we we have this, we love to talk about the culture wars of, of, you know, keep Christ in Christmas and say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays and all that. I'm not saying I want us to go out and be cranks and, and just pick fights everywhere we can. But let's be winsomely and boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus, the hope that we have that the world does not. And you will be laughed at and you will be made fun of. You will be ridiculed. You will feel like you failed at times. But at the end of the day, the Lord is saying, I'm with you. Don't pick yourself back up. Come to me. I am with you. Don't do this on your own. Don't feel that you're alone. You may be out there, but I am with you far more powerfully than He made that promise to Jeremiah. He's delivered it to us in the Holy Spirit who's come to dwell in every one of us because of Christ's work. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this glorious truth that the Lord Jesus says, if if we love You, then You have loved us and You've set Your home in us. We never go out into this world without an ally. And not just a fellow churchgoer, fellow Christian ally, Lord, we have you, the God of the heavens and the earth, as our ally. One man, one woman, with you on their side is a majority, even against all the world. So help us to be encouraged, to speak the truth that we've been given. Would we be so blessed and strengthened up In this wonderful gospel, this good news, Father, Son, and Spirit would come to save us. Would we respond by proclaiming it with great joy? And would we be encouraged that though we are weak, you are with us. You will go with us if we step out in faith. Help us to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.